Hello, everybody, and welcome to Public Health Musings. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline Kingori, a faculty member and public health researcher at Ohio University. We're excited you could be with us today. This week, we have Dr. Neil Tutlam, who earned his Bachelor of Science degree in biology from Tennessee State University and both his Master of Public Health and PhD degrees from St. Louis University. He is the Chronic Disease Epidemiology Program Manager in the Division of Health Promotion and Public Health Research at St. Louis County Department of Public Health, where he oversees chronic diseases and mental health surveillance. He is also a project director for Project Restore, which is a four-year, 1.7 million minority youth violence prevention project that was funded by the Office of Minority Health in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. He's also an adjunct instructor of epidemiology at the Brown School at Washington University in St. Louis and teaches a chronic disease prevention course at Lindenwood University. His research interests include chronic diseases, maternal and child health, and intergenerational impact of war trauma of South Sudanese people. So welcome to our podcast today. So Dr. Tutlam, in your current role at the St. Louis County Department of Public Health, you are focusing on chronic diseases, mental health, as well as youth violence in the St. Louis area. So to get us started, could you tell us uh, more about the chronic diseases that you focus on and which ones are most prevalent in the St. Louis area? Thank you very much, Dr. Kengori, for uh, having me uh, on your podcast today uh, and to, to talk about um, what we do here. So as you mentioned, I, I manage the Chronic Disease Epidemiology Program at St. Louis County Department of Public Health. Um, and so, as, as you can imagine, uh, you know, as you know, so seven of the 10 leading causes of death in, in the United States uh, are, are chronic diseases. This is also true in, in St. Louis County here. And, and actually, we, we do analysis and based on our data from, I believe, 2011 through 2015, that's the latest uh, report that we published in 2018, um, so, you know, heart disease, cancer, and uh, all these are the leading causes of death. And so we try to focus on these um, chronic diseases that are important, that are prevalent in, in, our, in our jurisdiction. So I work for a local uh, health department, and so we focus on St. Louis County. Um, and our role basically is to try to analyze data and show people uh, what is going on in terms of uh, surveillance of the, these chronic diseases. We are a relatively new program. I think our program was established in 2014. Um, in terms of doing this, we believe not just uh, in the... Um, in writing reports, we write reports uh, that can have meaning, people that people can take and use and apply. My team and I talk about um, consequential epidemiology, where you know these reports that we write, we obviously uh, work in conjunction with community members, with people who are directly affected or are going to work on these issues directly and get their buy-in so that when we do write these reports and we do have recommendations, then these recommendations are have meaning and have people who already have worked on those so that they can be implemented in the best way possible. Wonderful. So could you tell us a little bit about the health disparities in that area? So who are the populations that are impacted by these chronic diseases, um, including mental health? 
as you know, uh, th there are very stark health disparities in the United States. Uh, we are no different in, in our jurisdiction here. Uh, people like uh, you and myself, you know, have known these disparities for a long time. And, and to be honest, the, the ongoing COVID-19 epidemic has sort of exposed these things that we already we have known for a long time and uh, they have come into this public view. Um, all available evidence uh, and data shows us clearly that these chronic disease disparities, obviously, um, my, uh, minority populations are disproportionately affected. So my, by minority of African-Americans. Um, and so that's where we are. And obviously, they tend to be, you know, people of color, like I said, and people who live um, in poverty and all that. So whether you're talking about diabetes, heart disease, and whatever you have, they tends to be uh, disproportionately affecting uh, African-Americans. And, and, and to just look at a few examples. So let's take uh, cancer, for example. In our last report that we did, uh, looking at uh, cancer disparities in St. Louis County. So when you look at the overall incidence, if we take, uh, for example, breast cancer, you look at breast cancer incidence, it was actually the incidence was much higher in the more affluent neighborhoods, zip codes in, in our jurisdiction. But when you look at the mortality, it's much, uh, much higher in the, you know, the zip codes with of that where low socioeconomic status uh, is highly concentrated. And so, you know, and, and you can look at it by race as well. When we look, compare black women to white women, uh, actually in our data, but in nine, black women had a 90% higher uh, breast cancer, more cancer mortality compared to white women. Um, you can say, look at some other examples like um, infant mortality, for example. Same, same thing applies. Uh, black babies die at a rate 2.6 times higher than, um, than that of white babies. And, and so it, and if you look at the rates, actually, uh, our rates in St. Louis County uh, compared to those you would see in, in, in the developing countries. And so these disparities manifest themselves in, in that manner. So race, uh, socioeconomic status. And just to go back to that um, idea of infant mortality, we actually tried to project forward to see when this gap between white and black may be, may be closed. And, and our analysis showed that if we continue doing whatever we are doing at this point, um, that gap may not be closed until 2085. And so you can see these uh, stark disparities um, manifesting in that manner by race. Um, you can look, go on on all kinds of uh, health metrics and, and there are those disparities by race and socioeconomic wow. status. Wow. So what do you think are the maybe sustainable measures that we could take, especially with regard to that infant mortality issue? And, and that's a nice question. So we, we have uh, different groups, obviously, work, working on these. So there are the different community partners uh, to trying to provide education, whether we, we are talking about teaching mothers how to take care of their babies, not to not go sleeping when people, uh, as soon as the baby is born, or looking at this, um, these social determinants of health overall. So housing, we know, affects um, uh, well-being of people. And so do these different factors, there isn't one thing that you can say, let's do X and, and, and that will result in, in, in elimination of these disparities. I think it's a multitude of things. And that's why I think we are very uh, glad that we work with a multidisciplinary team of people to address some of these people. So, for example, in terms of addressing uh, maternal and child health, which obviously includes this infant mortality and all these birth outcomes, 
uh, there are people at the table from managed care organizations to transportation organizations so that, you know, a mother who needs uh, transportation to her prenatal care can get that and all that. So all these issues intertwine and, uh, and, and have a huge impact on the mother. So we try to come at it from all these angles, basically addressing those social de- determinants of health that you, you, you're well aware. Great. Indeed, I agree with you that uh, to address some of these public health issues, we definitely need a comprehensive perspective um, that looks at the social determinants of health. So I like that you, you, know, you highlighted some structural barriers, um, some economic barriers, uh, how about social and cultural barriers? Um, have you run into that? Uh, are those factored into when you're analyzing and looking at some of these issues and how they impact well-being? Yes, there, there are those issues that you, you run into and we always have to look at those and obviously ad- address them as, as, as we see them. So um, that's the reason why we have all these multidisciplinary mm. approach. You know, you can talk about those cultural practices and, and all these things uh, that, um, that uh, we know uh, have a greater impact on, uh, on, on the health uh, overall of, of people. And so we, we, we work with different people to address all these. Uh, so these to issues. get a little bit more into the work that you're also doing with youth violence. Um, so they, you are you know, project manager for Project Restore. Could you tell us what is Project Restore? Yes. So, so Project Restore, uh, so this is uh, actually a, a four-year, as you indicated in the intro, a four-year, uh, $1.7 million uh, project that is funded by the Office of Minority Health. This is a division of uh, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And, and the goal of the project is basically to implement interventions that are aimed at uh, promoting uh, protective and uh, risk factors for, for engaging or being a victim of violent behavior in, um, uh, among minority youths. So these interventions, for example, include peer mentoring or life skills training, uh, academic tutoring. We also have... Um, a summer program, or actually, right now, it's uh, it's become uh, an after-school program that is actually implemented by our partners, uh, which is the Police Athletic League, which is um, sort of a five hundred one c three branch of the St. Louis County uh, de- uh, Police Department. And, and so we work with all these these different uh, groups uh, to implement these interventions. And so one of other intervention is parental engagement, so that parents can engage more fully in the education of their their children. Another thing that um, we talk about, you know, the community police policing, and we, we, it's so much in the news these days, the relationship between communities of color and the police. Um, and so this idea of community policing so that police can have these uh, relationships, built-in relationships with partner, with communities they police. So this is part of the reason why we actually work with the Police Athletic League so that kids who are growing up in this environment can have a relationship with the police that is not confrontational. They know they know them and all that. Actually, the police um, in this project mentor these kids. They help them do their homework. They play video games. They play sports games with them so that at least their interaction with police is not that um, confrontational when somebody is being detained and potentially even, you know, uh, end up in a bad situation where somebody can lose their life, as we've seen in recent um, in recent events that's hap- that are happening across the United States. And so 
that's part of the reason. This was actually a requirement of the of the funding agency. They said, you know, you have to come together and, and these are the sort of things we want you to do. So we uh, put together these interventions uh, so that and we proposed those and, and the federal government thought these were, were worthy of funding and they allowed us to go forward to implement these and, and, and work on those. So looking at that project, it's, uh, you know, it's a large project, overarching project. Could you just briefly tell us how did you engage the communities? Did you have town hall meetings? Did you go to door to door? What were their perceptions about uh, working with the police, even though the funders said that this is what needs to be done? What was the perception of the community members working with the health departments as well? Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, that's a great question. So as I mentioned, so this is when uh, the funding opportunity announcement came out. So the federal government had some criteria of, of who they wanted at the table. So they say we want a multidisciplinary team of, of people to propose a project that um, that they can implement. And so one of the groups were, so they said, you, you have to have uh, schools as part of the partners, you have to have public health, you have to have the police, um, and you know you have to have um, institutions of higher learning. And, and so as, as a public health department that is obviously concerned about violence as a public health issue, so we became the, the sort of the convener. And we, the, the thing that helped us is we already also had these established relationships with, uh, with academia, with, with the police. Obviously, we are part of the same government with the police. Um, and our police department actually has a very robust data unit, data group, and people who are doing uh, a lot of great work. And we have the Police Athletic League that was already working with schools, certain schools. And so we tapped into that and we said, and we also as the health department, we had a project called Teenage Health Consultants, uh, where we have uh, children from, so students from high school mentoring uh, students in the lower classes and all that. And so we took that, that program that we already had in the health department and we wanted to, we built on it. So that's the peer mentorship program that I referred to earlier on. And so we, we built on that and we said, we have these already these existing relationships. We have this program, we can enhance this program. We can add to it tutoring and all that. And so we called everybody. So, uh, and so because the grant said, you know, we have to have a certain percentage of minority population in, in that you are serving as part of this grant. So uh, as, as you may be aware, there are cities or jurisdictions in this kind of way, you know, there is really, um, that are sort of segregated in, in, in a way. Let's be blunt about that. And so the northern part of our, our St. Louis County region is most predominantly African American. And so that's where the schools that we targeted and most of them readily accepted and came to the table and helped us develop these programs. And all that. as we were writing the proposal, we were all at the table uh, as equal partners with just us being the lead, uh, lead agency. And so when we proposed that the federal government saw that that partnership of all these groups coming together, and it, it's not easy by any means bringing all these different uh, organizations with different cultures and different personalities together and, and working together. And that has been actually a very good practice. Actually, I should point out this year, we uh, at the end of last year, we actually wrote that up as a model practice to, to nature, the National Association of City and County county health department uh, health uh, officials 
and and it was it was designated as a model practice because we were able to bring all these groups together. We are actually our department is going to get that award uh, at the beginning of next month, and so we, we are fortunate to have all these uh, wonderful partners and partnerships. Wow, it's good that you have made mm-hmm. um, great strides with that. I'm sure there are many learning curves. Um, and so I wanted to know what year are you in with the funded proposal and have you measured any impact so far on minimizing youth violence, um, et cetera? Yes, absolutely. Great question again. So we, uh, so th- this is a four-year grant. We started in 2017, July 2017. So we are going to our fourth year. Our fourth year will begin July or July 1st this year up to the end of June 30th. Um, so the end of June next year. Uh, so we are going into our final final year, and we actually I should point out. So we have uh, we work with three school districts within our region, and so part of the project. This is actually what is called a demonstration grant to show if these programs that you are implementing actually do work or not. And so we have a very robust evaluation component to, the, to that. So we, we, we have a team of researchers that are doing, uh, so they do surveys of, of the students. They do surveys with the um, uh, focus groups, surveys with the, with the administrators uh, as well. And so we are collecting that data and analyzing what we see so far uh, gives us um, hope that uh, there is it's showing some impact in terms of improving grades. Um, so some of the measures we want to see is that this, the students in the in the project, so we have um, we have an intervention group. So we at the beginning we enrolled about uh, close to about six hundred students, and then we have a control group. And so a control group that is not actually receiving any of the programming, and we and so we are taking these measurements and we are comparing our intervention group to the control group. And the hope is that you know uh, we will improve the student attendance in school. We will improve uh, dis- um, have a reduction in disciplinary actions. We will have improved relations between um, uh, the, the students who are in our group with with the police, with their uh, the people that they are working with. Uh, there will be increased parental engagement. So we are tracking all these. Uh, hopefully, by the end of the grant, when we do see this, um, do analyze the data, we will see that this this is indeed um, the, the fact. So from what you've seen so far, I know that it's focusing on the youth, but also we know that definitely the burden of change cannot be just on the individual. Are you seeing any changes on the how they're engaging with their parents or how their parents are engaging with them, how the police are engaging with them, and they're just a the general community and their perceptions about youth, especially youth of color? Yes, so the the engagement with the parents has been the tricky part in in that we we haven't come up with really a very good way to. to so we, we've tried a number of uh, strategies to in, uh, get the parents more involved, get, get them engaged, and all that. That has been quite an an ongoing challenge. Uh, what what I can say is that also one other thing that I, I didn't mention earlier on, we also wanted, um, so one of the proposals was to um, implement restorative justice uh, practices. So in the schools, you know, where we, when we were talking with them initially, the schools told us, you know, there were various levels of implementing restorative justice and all that there were schools um, that were ahead of the others. And so we said, what if we evaluate this restorative justice practices? We just want to see what you're doing. 
and then we can provide some technical assistance from some experts that can guide you in helping, in helping implement these things. What I am very pleased about is that so, so some of the schools have actually taken this to heart and they've used the resources that we have provided as the, as a part of this grant to basically take this to the next, next level where they restorative justice, they have, they have, they have sent their um, staff to trainings. Um, and these people have come back and they train their peers, their colleagues. And, and this has become sort of basically to implement this cultural change in the schools. And that has been really, really uh, fulfilling to, to see. Great. So you talk about restorative justice. What does that mean? What are those schools doing? Good question. So basically, so the students, the schools, instead of, you know, the punitive measures, suspending the students and all that is basically uh, have a discussion with the students to see if a student gets in trouble, the, the, asking the question why, you know, and, and why, why is the students going deeper and, and trying to, instead of punishing the students and basically trying to get to the students to understand, hey, they did wrong and, and, and why they shouldn't have done that and all these practices basically where students basically that there are schools where in in the students in this this group they sit in a group they sit in these circles where they have meditations they have these discussions and talking about all these issues with their with their teachers and their mentors and all that and so that's that's what what that includes. Awesome. And just uh, piggyback, you said you are comparing, you have a treatment group and a control group. Do you have any preliminary findings? Yes. So we do see that um, some of the, stu- the students in, in, in the, um, in the co- of intervention group uh, show some signs of improving um, uh, some of their grades, not, not by a lot. So the, at this point, this is the data from last year that we, we, we looked at. Uh, by a lot, not by a lot, looking at um, their disciplinary action. So that seems to be improving uh, a lot and all that. And so we need to look at the data a lot more closely. Great. So back to your training, Um, you have a degree in public health. What role does it play in your career endeavors? And why did you pursue this field? So I, um, I'm an epidemiologist by training, and that's what what I what I do now. Um, primarily, I'm a chronic disease epidemiologist uh, at, at the County Department of Public Health, and and so that's that's my role. That's what I do. I use my my training uh, to to do what I what what I do. Uh, and what led me to to public health is, you know, uh, obviously I. Um, I don't know if you get told you that I'm originally from South Sudan, so spent some time in the refugee camps and all that. And as I was thinking about public health, in terms of uh, some of the things that, you know, people died from in the refugee camps uh, a long time ago, you know, things that are easily preventable and all that. So when I was applying to public health, I applied with that that uh, that idea in mind, you know, what is uh, what is it that I can study or can do that can uh, I can then go back and apply and use to do the most good for the mo- most uh, greater number of people. And so that that was where I came from. And that was my thinking when I was getting into public health. Awesome. And just to the listeners who do not know what an epidemiologist is, could you tell us a little bit about that? So the way I explain it to my daughter is that it's these people who um, some people have called us disease detectives. Basically, that's 
really what it is. So people who study um, the occurrence of disease in a popul in a population, like uh, occurrence and distribution of disease in a population. So I mean, COVID nineteen has sort of um, made some of us some some epidemiologists famous these days. So. Uh, if you think of the people who are tracking some of the, the diseases that are occurring in the population, COVID-19 being the prime example right now, uh, is, uh, is that's, that's what we do. And to continue talking about your interest in, you know, making a difference back, back home um, and having been a refugee. So your research interests include working on intergenerational um, impact of war trauma, and in South Sudan. So have you been able to go back and what does that intergenerational impact um, look like? Great. So I'll take that, that uh, the question of going back for. So yeah, I think the last time I was in South Sudan was uh, back in 2011. So that's, it's been a long time. Um, and, and so in terms of looking at the intergenerational transmission of trauma, so uh, I, as I said, you know, well, I'm originally from South Sudan and and this topic um, is something that is near and dear to my heart. I I have dealt with my own PTSD, uh, you know, after after losing my dad through a plane crash during the war, and so I've had to deal with with that. And I've come come at this topic from um, from a personal point of view, also from a point uh, from a view as a researcher. Um, and so the the, the, the Originally, you know, when when I was applying to graduate school to the PhD program to 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 pursue my PhD, this wasn't <laughs> interesting. This wasn't my my uh, my original topic. I sort of ended up here in in a weird in a weird manner. But uh, now that I am so sort of this neck deep in in this this topic. Uh, it make, makes a lot of sense to me. It, it's something that um, it's like, why didn't I think about this as, as, as my first topic of study? So the idea is, is that um, here in the United States, we have obviously a large population of South Sudanese that started coming here in the 90s. Uh, they came here as refugees, uh, so I'm one of them. And, and, and so these people have gone through, you know, almost seven, at this point, 70 years of war in South Sudan. And that trauma, we do know that people who have been exposed to war and all that, um, obviously experience that trauma and have man which manifests, you know, as these um, psychological distress, right? Uh, PTSD, depression, and anxiety. That, that has been well established. But now there is also this idea that uh, that that trauma that has been experienced by that group or by a group of people doesn't actually stop that can be transmitted to the next generation. And then a good example of this is um, so in the 1960s, um, children of the survivors of the Holocaust who were born in the United States and in, in Canada started presenting to clinics, hospitals with symptoms similar to, you know, what their parents experienced. And these kids never experienced the Holocaust themselves. So that's where this idea of intergenerational transmission of trauma came from. And, and in my community, in the South Sudanese community in the United States, we have children who are experiencing a lot of uh, these uh, emotional behavioral problems. And as a researcher, my question was that, does that have something to do with what their parents experience? And so I set out to, to answer that question. Basically, that's what my dissertation research 
uh, focused on. And, and I, I can tell you that um, based on the data that, uh, that I have, I, I collected from my, from my dissertation, there, there seems to be some evidence of that. Uh, for example, if you look at uh, children's who speak, so joint effect of mother's uh, PTSD and having experienced this trauma um, uh, is associated with at least 40, 47% increase in the child um, developing, depre having depression. And so you can see that clearly is linked and there is something to that. And so that's what uh, um, my study focuses on. Wow. Sorry about your dad. Um, and also, this is a really interesting um, area of research. Um, what do you plan to do in the future? Because it looks like your hands are pretty full with, um, you know, youth violence and chronic diseases. <laughs> How are you? What are you doing to um, enhance what you started working on for your dissertation? <laughs> Good question. So, yes, that's that's a, that's a topic that is near and dear to my heart. And it's something that I'm not going to abandon. Actually, as part of that right now, I am... Uh, I am uh, in this uh, training program uh, at Washington University, um, uh, Washington University in St. Louis. Here, uh, it's basically lead it's called lead global uh, program that is aimed at training uh, researchers who can lead these multidisciplinary research projects um, in in these resource poor uh, settings. And so, I hope to continue this this work that I've started using it, uh, using that as a vehicle. Um, to basically expand on that, to try to, you know, collect more data on the South Sudanese. Um, <clears throat> one of my frustrations as a researcher, <clears throat> excuse me, is, is that when you look at, um, and I'm working on a review paper right now, looking at the prevalence of these uh, trauma-associated disorders in the South Sudanese community in different settings. So, so whether it's the refugee camps, whether it is... Uh, in uh, in these other countries of resettlement and and all that and South Sudanese who are basically in in their home country still um, and looking at that um, there are in despite the fact that South Sudan has been at war literally since 1955 there aren't that many studies uh, that have assessed uh, prevalence of depression anxiety there's about 10 papers that have that and that's what I have as part of my, my review. And so um, my work is to try to get that data out there and establish so what is the true prevalence of these uh, <clears throat> trauma-associated disorders in, in the community, both back home and, and in the South Sudanese community in the United States here. And then hopefully with this training that I'm, get I'm getting, uh, to who to move to this uh, idea of this implementation science, which is what I'm I'm learning right now as part of this program, uh, is that you can then propose uh, interventions to to help people. So, for example, these kids that are ending up ending up in jail and 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 ending up in not so good situations. What is it that we? What are interventions that can, can we propose or can we design to help these kids actually come out of this? Because whatever they are going through may not necessarily be. Uh, a problem that is of their own making. It may be something that they were uh, predisposed to having as a result of what their parents experienced and all that. And so that's what I hope to, to do with that. I definitely wish you the best with that because I think it will be pretty interesting to uh, discover, you know, what are some of those underlying issues that uh, this uh, youth are, are experiencing based on that intergenerational trauma 
but also looking at that the fact that they're sandwiched between um, you know two different cultures you know now that they're in the United States and their parents have moved to the United States, but I've had to still deal with the issues that they faced back home in South Sudan and having to um, acculturate. And then these children being born here in the United States, but still experiencing some sort of trauma from what their parents have gone through, but they are, they are Americans. So that's it's going to be really interesting to find a, um, a common place or common ground to address those mental health or mental um, preceding mental illnesses coming from that. Exactly. So we, we have to be able to tease those, those, those issues out. So, I mean, one of the questions that might be is, you know, um, how do you, how, how sure are you that it's whatever these kids uh, is affecting these kids is their mother's trauma and not because they live in a, in a rough neighborhood in, you know, whatever zip code it is, pick your city. Uh, and, and so, so we have to be able to tease those out. And I think if we have, um, uh, more robust data collection, obviously well-designed studies. We 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 can easily tease tease those uh, those issues yes. out. And indeed, as it um, as as the, as you you know find ways to roll out the intervention, um, having again looking at it from a multifaceted perspective, where you can bring in their parents and um, their networks um, and, and see how that can enrich their lives as well. So how is the health department dealing with um, COVID-19 and the current issues that you're looking at? Um, the resources, have they been impacted? Um, and what measures are being employed to minimize the COVID-related infections? This is, this is an interesting, uh, I mean, this is a serious problem. Uh, and since the beginning of this 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 uh, pandemic, we we we've invested heavily heavily um, in identifying. So you've heard of contact tracing. So we we so people who uh, test positive and their contacts, we try to get to their contacts as quickly as possible and try to have those people self quarantine uh, so that they do not spread the the disease uh, to to others. As you as you well you're well aware. Uh, testing was was uh, a significant barrier in at the earlier on at the beginning of the pandemic, and so and obviously there is no treatment for this uh, for the for COVID nineteen. And one of the best ways we we essentially told people was to you know c- keep people away from each other so that they do not um, they do not spread the disease. So our jurisdiction was. Um, um, ahead of this in terms of uh, being very aggressive in terms of instituting these stay-at-home um, measures uh, so that uh, indeed people uh, are kept apart. So we, we had those stay-at-home orders uh, earlier on, and we believe that that actually did help a lot in terms of um, uh, mitigating this issue. And, 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 and now as testing has become more available, we are moving to that phase where we are actually, we've ex- actually this week, we've expanded our tens- testing to even include asymptomatic individuals, particularly individuals who uh, I, I will come into contact with member, general members of the public in terms of their, in the course of their duties and all that. And so we are moving to, to that. And, and so that, that's a big focus now. So we've been focusing on, you know, um, uh, obviously, so that people uh, contact tracing has been something that we invested heavily on and monitoring the, the individuals who have come into contact, we have been exposed to COVID-19, as well as the, the people who have tested positive for COVID-19. Wow. So hopefully the 
um, all these measures being undertaken will help continue to protect us and that we'll also as community members, um, you know, <laughs> do what we need to do to ensure that we can minimize um, any additional infections. Mm-hmm. So is there anything else you wanted to add as a last point as we wind down? Yeah, so I mean, going back to that uh, the, that um, uh, um, COVID nineteen issue. So we uh, we obviously, uh, as as a public health agency, we've been encouraging people to maintain social distancing, wear mask when 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 you are in public, and uh, follow proper hygiene. You know, hand washing, using hand sanitizers. Uh, and as I say, testing has, has moved to the phase where we are actually trying even to identify asymptomatic people so that we can stop the, you know, people may not be spreading the disease uh, without without even knowing, you know, if you are asymptomatic, you don't know you have it. So you, you potentially you can um, uh, exp- uh, <coughs> spread it. And, and part of the thing, so as, as you said, you know, the as we said earlier on, this exposed these stark disparities in 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 our in in our healthcare system. So part of the things that we've done as people who believe in data will follow these um you know the evidence. We we actually directed resources to help address some of these uh, these issues in the most affected areas, and so that is something that. Uh, has been really um, uh, fantastic to see in, in the sense that, you know, people, the leadership and all that, where we are focusing on the vulnerable populations, whether it's the nursing homes, whether it's, in, you know, people in these economically deprived areas of, of our jurisdiction and all that. And, and we've been fortunate enough, we've also gotten received funding from the federal government and we are actually directing those resources to help address some of these uh um, issues that have been <laughs> were here even before COVID started. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I definitely wish you the best in um, as you continue doing research in all these different topics. Um, and uh, hopefully we will get to hear from you um, soon with feedback. Thank you very much. Thank you for uh, having me. This has uh, been a very uh, wonderful discussion and, and thank you for, for doing this and uh, keep up uh, the great work. Thank you. And thank you to the listeners. And we hope you'll join us again for the next um, round of discussions on various public health topics.